Onshore wind drove the delivery of 40% renewable electricity for 2020, but this was only a stepping stone on our path to achieving a net-zero carbon electricity supply. Solar PV and offshore wind are about to step onto the stage and will play significant roles in our future energy mix. But the objective isn't to just generate more renewable electricity, it's to consume more renewable electricity. So changes will be needed to enable our electricity grid to make the best use of the energy sources available to it. How can this next phase of renewable energy development learn from the trials and tribulations of the past to enable growth at a faster pace than ever? And will our electricity system be capable of delivering this abundance of renewable energy to electricity customers? To learn more, I'm talking with Noel Kniff, CEO of Wind Energy Ireland, and Connell Bulger, CEO of the Irish Solar Energy Association. I'm Paddy Finn, and this is the Electricity Exchange. Noel, Connell, uh, it's great to talk to you today. And one thing that I really love about working in a renewable-focused electricity sector mm. is that the people that I get to work with are all very purpose-driven. And getting to work with different associations, different industries that are all focused on Ireland's renewable energy goals means that when you're talking to people about their various solutions, they're not trying to hammer home that their solution needs to come on, out on top and over others. They are trying to look at the objective and what's the most suitable set of solutions to actually economically meet the objectives. So I suppose that means that in trying to get to the bottom of what's important about the integration of renewables onto the system, a key question is, why do you do what you do? So... Yeah, no. it's a good, it's a great question, Paddy. Um, it's one that I'm often asked, like, do I wake up in the morning and think I can't wait to build wind turbines today? And the answer is not, not really. You know, that's not what's really driving me. What's really driving me is, is the a future that's uh, green and clean and safe for my kids to grow up in. As cheesy as that does sound, it does really drive your purpose. I, I think all of us have. Uh, the three of us here around the table, we've young families, um, and I think that makes you look at life and through a different lens. And certainly it was one of the main reasons that I transitioned into my current role. I looked at the ability of Ireland to contribute to decreasing emissions, becoming more renewable and what's Ireland's best mechanism of doing so. And it's, it, in my opinion, at the time, it was certainly wind energy and that is still my opinion. So uh, every day I try and get up and do my best to try and deliver clean energy in the cheapest way possible for the consumer so that we can get ourselves off fossil fuels as quickly as possible and reduce our carbon emissions. And that's what drives me. And I kind of from my side, it's probably something very similar. I, I, there's no kind of route towards decarbonizing uh, our economy and our world that doesn't go via the mass deployment of renewable electricity. Mm. Um, you just have to look at the IPCC and everything else. And climate change was something that motivated me um, kind of long throughout my career. I started my career in renewables. When, when I left college, you know, there was something I really wanted to do was, you know, join the battle to save the world and fight climate change. And the option was at the time was renewable electricity. And it still is the kind of the leading option, the best tool we have today currently. And personally, Noel mentioned being a father. Mm. I, I definitely, I think of it like tra time travel. The, the effects of climate change can feel very 
um, intellectual almost sometimes, very abstract. But when you look at your little fella wrecking the house um, and you start thinking about what he's going to have to do in 20 years, if he's going to buy a house, can he buy a house near the coast? Where is he going to go to school? Um, you know, what, what are the, what's the weather going to be like? Will he know what a summer is? Will he know what a winter is? Um, and it makes it very directly personal. And when you're doing the kind of work that myself and Noel do, there's a lot of, it's political advocacy in a lot of cases, a lot of regulatory barriers. You're fighting the state to try and get it to move a bit faster than it wants to move to deliver on the climate targets. And you get a, you get a lot of pushback. You get um, a lot of resistance and institutional inertia. And I find that it's very helpful to keep that personal motivation at those times. Yeah, I think a common trait is in the industry is that people have a real internal drive to leave the world in, in a little bit better way than the mm. founders. And then the search is to how do you best use your skill set in order to make that happen? And uh, when you look at the electricity sector in, in particular, I suppose going right back to 1929 with Ardna Krusha, it was a large scale renewable energy source. Yeah. Was the, it, was, the, it was a quarter of the state's budget at the quarter, time. Yeah. You know, so it was like this kind of decision that we are going to modernize this country. We're going to electrify. We're going to be, do it from our own natural resources and be an independent uh, on, you know, in terms of generation of our electricity mix. Um, and it was building on, there was all these little uh generators all around the country that were kind of, you know, largely fossil fired. But this was the kind of real opportunity to take a quantum leap forward as a modern nation. And that's as true today as it was then. I suppose when we look at uh, electricity, often being quoted as uh, constituting 22% of final electri- uh, final energy use, mm. it, it really underrepresents the importance of electricity mm. and the role that it plays in decarbonisation because electricity provides an, a real solution for other sectors to become more renewable. So by basically putting a plug on heat and on transport, it gets to leverage the renewable content in the electricity system. So I suppose that's been a real driver in terms of where, why electricity has been focused on. And where we've gotten to with 40% of our electricity being supplied by renewable energy in 2020, wind has been Mm. the real deliverer of that. So where are we now in terms of the uh, wind energy on the system and uh, how does that um, reflect where we're going in the future? Yeah, it, I, I think the last decade has been a real success story when it comes to wind energy. Like a lot of people don't know this, but we're number one in the world when it comes to the share of our electricity demand met by onshore wind energy. So other countries like Denmark, they have a higher proportion of wind energy in general because they've offshore and that's something that we haven't yet tapped into. But if you look at what got us to that point, we set a target of 40% early, 2008 we had the target and we had all the major stakeholders around the table with a plan to to deliver on it. You had, um, you know, a really good support scheme in place through refit, very well signposted. People knew exact deadlines, they knew exactly what they were going to get out of it. You had a, a grid plan in grid 25 that at the time looked really um, futuristic, very much outward looking, very much um, let's build future capability in for the country. Now, granted, not all of that was delivered, um, but there was a plan there at the time. And then you had the DS3 program, which showed how you can integrate all of this wind energy on the system. And it's through a combination of all of those and working together with all the major stakeholders, you needed the regulator, you needed the industry, you needed the system operators, you needed the government departments to be able to deliver on it. Everyone pulled together to try and deliver on it. And I know, uh, uh, Connell, to your point earlier, 
um, the personal drive that does drive everyone and some of the inertia that we come mm. up against in the, the say the, the state system and some mm. of the um, state bodies I think on a personal level everyone's so driven towards trying to do the right thing it's really around trying to break the mould because what we've done up until this point is not sufficient to get us for, to where we need to go in the next decade It's also very important to note that when like you're quoting the amount of onshore winds that we have, mm. that's the the resource we have in Ireland is we have wind and we have solar. And we often hear about other countries that have higher integration of renewable energy in their electricity supply. But it's it's really important to differentiate between the sources, right? Because the if you look at uh, countries that have uh, large a- access to large hydro, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, a very different ballgame in terms of integration and also if they have geothermal as well. So I suppose, Noel, kind of drawn back to your experience in, in Airgrid previously, can you give us a, a kind of a picture as to the difference of integrating those sources of renewables versus integrating wind and why this is, Ireland has has really achieved a lot in achieving 40% uh, renewables from wind. Yeah, so in my previous role, I was the renewable integration lead in Ergrid and it was my job to try and uh, drive policy changes to get more variable renewables like wind and solar onto the grid. Um, it's very unusual. Ireland is a what's called a synchronous system. We're not connected to the likes of Britain or or mainland Europe in a way that many other countries in mainland Europe are where if you say an issue in France then Spain and Portugal are there they're synchronised they can help support it Ireland's by itself Uh, we at the time in Ergrid and still I think are probably one of the best in the world when it comes to managing wind and solar variability on the system. And it really, a lot of my job at the time was almost trying to educate other countries and how they could take what was learned, what was say developed in Ireland and scale it upwards. Uh, I think there's a, a quote, Nancy Pelosi from the US, she came over and she visited uh, the control centre in Ergrid at the time and she said we're small enough to be uh, relevant, but large enough to get, or sorry, large enough to be relevant, but small enough to actually get it done. Um, so, you know, Ireland is often looked at a really good test bed and that's where the likes of Australia, I know uh, they're one of the more emerging markets when it comes to renewables, but also things like GB and, and wider Europe is now looking to lessons learned in Ireland to help integrate more wind and solar on the system. And I suppose, actually, we met um, through the DS3 Advisory mm. Council. I suppose that's where our first kind of interactions would have been. And the DS3 programme was quite revolutionary in terms of it's integration of variable sources and also dealing with very low inertia on the system. And definitely something that we see um, as we travel internationally with Viotas is the regard in which Ireland is held in um, and Airgrid are held in um, as a result of the DS3 programme and, and what that's achieved. Um, and I suppose one thing, you know, we, we touched on the point earlier around the 22% from uh, contribution, uh, 22% of final use from electricity. But a lot of that is down to massive inefficiencies mm. um, with the with the remainder. So when we look at transport and heat in particular, it's not just a case that by electrifying it, it gets to leverage the renewable content in the wind, in the solar on the system. Mm. It also gets about, um, it, it also gets about a two thirds, it, it'll end up having a two thirds reduction in the amount of energy it's consuming. So th- there's, a re- there's a real double bubble here. Yeah, you actually reduce the scale of the problem you're trying to solve mm. when you electrify things and you make it a lot easier. You can't electrify everything, but it helps get you a lot of the way there. And then, it give, you know, you create the space for other solutions and other industries to really contribute at scale. 
And that's part of, just to jump mm. in, that's part of one of the new solutions that really we need mm. to bring forward in the next decade. In the past, it's been extremely focused on generation. So, mm. you know, that 40% res E target, it was all about let's been, build as much wind energy as we possibly can. But yeah. where we're looking now into the future, it's all about net zero. It's I think we need to, as a country, transition beyond a renewable electricity target, mm. go to net zero because that brings in the supply side as well as the demand side. Well, it's thinking about it in a much more integrated way. You know, if you look at your system of the future, you're talking about kind of down at the kind of individual user level they have their own generation capability they also have their own ability to flex their own demand because that kind of helps with you know matching supply and demand a little bit better than at the utility scale you're probably talking kind of wind and solar working in concert in terms of the generation side and then you know your problem becomes too much power at sometimes too little power at other times and using kind of flexibility uh, solutions to help kind of move that around and kind of shift that problem. And then that leads you to an offshore network then where you have a, a lot of offshore wind, probably working in a lot of concert, probably working in concert with a lot of hydrogen, which mm. seems to be the favorite solution at the minute because we have so much potential there. And that system is one that is much more decentralized than what we have today. It's one that is much smarter than what we have today, but it is one that does require a lot more infrastructure to be built as well. And part, a big part of the electrification journey is going to be delivery of infrastructure. And I, mm. I think when we talk about the DS3 and the management side, that's something that, yes, there was a lot of good work done there. I think one of our big challenges, and we'll probably get onto this a little bit later, is that delivery of that kind of infrastructure and managing that system in a much smarter way than the way we've done to date. Like it's still, to an extent, it's guys with binders in the dispatch control center still and the system I've described can't be run like that. Mm, yeah, exactly. And I think the the solution that's worked for us up until this point has been very, very sequential in nature. Mm. And that's something that we need to change as well. It's gone from you get your planning first, then you get your grid connection, mm. then you get your route to market, then you sort out your supply chain, you construct, and then you worry about integrating it mm. onto the grid. We don't have time for that. Um, we can't wait for years for planning decisions to be made to get grid connections to for construction yeah. to happen. We need to try and parallel as many of those up as possible. And that's where I think breaking the mold as to what the traditional development process for infrastructure in general in Ireland when it comes to renewables, uh, we, we need to do that if we're to hit our goals. And, and the carrot here is huge. So, Connell, you spoke about um, decarbonisation being somewhat intellectual in terms of uh, how we think about it. It's, it's almost something that's on the never, never in our minds. Uh, we don't see it in front of our eyes, the effects mm. of it uh, immediately. But I recently spoke with Paul Dean and uh, Paddy Phelan. Mm. And I suppose Paul's key focus is on improving the quality of life yeah. uh, for the people in Ireland. And I think some of the points that were raised are points that we often miss in terms of the real carrot. There's a huge carrot in terms of achieve, achieving our objectives and in terms of breaking down the barriers to achieving our objectives. And I suppose one key one is around the quality of life um, if we have uh, we have secure energy supply in Ireland and we have a, a low cost uh, source of energy in Ireland because a key source of stress in people's lives yeah. is, is financial challenges. Well, like if you've opening your power bill or your gas bill recently is like opening a thriller. Uh, you know, you honestly don't yeah. know what the number is going to be. And, you know, I've, de- I, you know, the, in the industry, the, the jargon is bill shock. And that's certainly been, I think, felt by a lot of people. And it, I mean, one of the examples of where, for example, probably we see solar helping a lot with those kinds of pieces is that, you know, if you're generating yourself a high proportion of that from kind of your own 
sustainable source where essentially you're going to take down the scale of that bill. That's a good contributor to the quality of people's lives. Something, you know, it was notable in the government's recent energy security framework. They were talking about putting panels up on like houses, houses for people in energy poverty. And it, it makes a huge amount of sense. It's, it's, it's rounding error on the state's national budget. Costs nothing. Big improvement of people's lives because one of the biggest stresses for people in uh, economic disadvantage is energy bills. And they're skyrocketing. And we, like last year, your retail bill went up three to five times, you know, three to five times in currents. Um, you know, the wholesale cost is three times what it was this time last year. We're, and that's only going one other way with the Ukrainian war. But in, international, international uh, fossil fuel prices underpin the cost of all manufacturing, yeah. the cost of all food production. So it isn't just when we get our energy bills that it's, go, that it's going to affect it. It's going to yeah. affect our access to um, uh, goods and services. And well, I, I think we also have to be a little, there's a, there's a nuance um, here as well that like when you look at the bill, like the international fossil fuel price is a big part of it, yes, but there's a lot of domestic policy decisions we take. Um, you know, like if, going back in, in more normal times, like that wholesale cost, that cost the international trade apart is about say 40% of your bill. Your PSO is about five, six percent maybe four sometimes. Your VAT is about 11%. Supply costs are about 11%. The residual, which is a good third, is usually network costs. And we, the way we charge for network costs, the way, the way the regulatory structures around those, they add a lot of costs to not just, you know, my members when they're trying to connect renewable projects to the grid, but they also add direct costs to people's bills, the way they're quantified and the way, the way it's worked through. And it just, it's something that doesn't get a lot of attention. And I do feel, you know, Noel talked about breaking the mold and moving forward. And, you know, that's something we need to do. And we have to stop being afraid of looking at the sacred cows. We're a little too happy to kind of go, ah, well, you know, there's good process and this is the way we've been doing it for the last 10 years. And that's, we don't have time for that. Like we, we have to profoundly transform the way we consume and use electricity in this country in the next seven and a half years. So that means getting going. That means starting to build real network. It's starting to operate in a much smarter way. It's recognizing that we have to parallel all these work streams, as you both kind of alluded to, and recognizing that we're not always going to get it right, but that's okay because the journey is going to be one where it's a cleaner economy, our electricity supply is more secure, our wider energy supply is more secure, people are going to be healthier and happier. And that doesn't sound like a bad future to me. And just to add on to all of the benefits <laughs> that you've just listed, which I completely agree with, um, uh, I think the cheaper energy bills are a natural outcome of moving away from fossil fuels. Mm. So if you look at the wholesale prices at the moment, they're two to 300 euro. Um, we're recording this right after the Res 2 auction results where uh, the average price was 97. It was mo- probably much higher than people anticipated, but at the same time, it's less than half the price of the nearest fossil fuel competitor. And the good thing about how the auction is designed is that whenever the, the um, say, energy price in the day-to-day market is greater than 97, then renewable generators will be paying mm. back to the consumer. So the PSO levy should go down, might even become a minus in the future. Yeah. We're also creating jobs as well, Connor, which is something 
something that's quite overlooked. You're not just talking about a more secure supply of electricity. You're actually talking about keeping money in mm. Ireland. You're not buying imports from uh, the, the large uh, fossil fuel producing countries all over the world. You're keeping that money in Ireland. There's about 7,000 jobs in Ireland right now just from onshore wind energy. Mm. By the end of this decade, there's probably going to be the equivalent in offshore wind energy. I can only imagine the amount of jobs in solar energy mm. as you get down to that residential level yeah, and, and, and in it's uh, like you need to kind of triple the headcount in the utility, the current headcount in the utility scale. And when you get to the residential level, they're talking about something like quadrupling the amount of people currently working and kind of retrofits, energy efficiency and all those. And those are good jobs and they're jobs that are going to be needed because we've a lot of building stock in this country where that needs a lot of work very quickly to help people. Um, no, I, I'm just loudly agreeing with a lot of what Noel is saying. And, and I think it also points to the, you know, the kind of delivery point about you need to, we need to do these things faster. How do we, there's, we, you know, we just energized the first solar project in Ireland uh, on the end of April. Um, my association has been in existence since 2013. Had we pushed for a lot of these projects earlier, and, I, and it's the same on the wind side too, we'd have these lower cost uh, renewable sources generating power and, you know, we'd be more insulated from what's happened uh, in Ukraine uh, and international commodity prices or fossilized international markets. Like we're the most energy insecure country in Europe. You know, we're at the end of every pipeline. We have minimal indigenous resources except in renewables. And, you know, it's, uh, it's strategically important for us as a nation to go after this and go after it hard. I'd argue we're strategically important to Europe when mm. it comes to energy independence. I know that's something uh, like like for us or the big focus is really let's look past 2030. I think mm. everyone gets very focused on 2030. Um, 2030 is a waypoint to a net zero mm. uh, economy. It's a waypoint to a net zero electricity system. But it's also a waypoint to Ireland becoming initially energy independent ourselves, but also then helping to contribute to Europe's wider energy independence. Uh, you know, a lot of people are starting to look to what can countries uh, with large sea areas provide uh, in terms of energy supply to Europe in the future. There was really large announcements in the North Sea last week with four countries coming together to say we're going to com combined build 150 gigawatts of offshore wind energy by 2050 to help decarbonize Europe. In Ireland, we're looking at five gigawatts of offshore by 2030. Uh, beyond 2030, there's a target in the program for government for an additional 30 gigawatts off the West Coast. We think that should be delivered by 2040. And then by 2050, you're probably looking at 70 to 80 gigawatts purely from Ireland because of our large sea area. The sea area in Ireland is seven times larger than our land area. We're one of the largest, I'd say, land masses in Europe when you actually take into account our ocean space as well. So when we look at uh, 2030 targets and we look at net zero, we can't look at them in isolation. I suppose that's, that's a key point is that we need to look at what it's going to take to achieve net zero and look at where 2030 features along that path as opposed to looking at 2030, focusing on that and reaching a step which isn't optimal for going forward to net zero. Totally. And uh, I think when you put everything through a carbon lens, it actually makes for much more sensible investments because you're not investing in something that, say, in 
10 years time or 15 years time would be a stranded asset, but at least it helps you to get your renewable electricity target in 2030. That's not what we should be doing. We should be looking at the end goal of a net zero electricity system and what are the smart investments that get you that to that point and certainly help, uh, you know, deploy as quickly as possible. When we're talking about carbon as well, it brings into account the, the government's new carbon budgets where they're going to be looking over the next, say, months, two months as to what parts of the economy can we cut carbon in the quickest. We in the electricity sector, we're going to have to get from 10 million tonnes of carbon today to 2 million by 2030 and then as quickly as possible net zero after that. So it's not just wind and solar, they're a huge part of the discussion, but it's also things like demand response, like in your own sector, Paddy, uh, energy storage, hydrogen, you need to bring everything onto the table, any kind of smart solution that we can develop to get projects through planning quicker and to get more grid capacity developed to be able to move the power around. That's what we need and, to focus on. And looking at the longer time horizon allows us to look at investing in um, larger asset projects, asset-based mm-hmm. projects that may go out for, you know, we'd be looking at 30 to 50 year lifespans on these and that's the yeah. way we'd be considering them. Like if you want to think about what we, if you're to- really talking about decarbonising the onshore network, you'd really be starting to think about the network info the infrastructure on parts of the country that are kind of ignored really in a lot of the network plans at the minute. Like if you look forward from kind of on a solar perspective as part of a kind of a portfolio technologies, we'd see it kind of a blend of about the equivalent of about 20% of demand of 2030. And that's kind of a mix of the utility scale and the kind of customer scale solar. And when you play that forward into a portfolio, one of the, I suppose like solar's kind of been missing. It's, it hasn't really been to the table to date um, partly because there was a lot of policy blockages that kind of prevented it from getting there. And that recent auction, we've connected uh, one project uh, in Wicklow and that last, the, the recent auction, uh, solar won 1,500 megawatts, which is a substantial change. And just po- really, I think it points to the scale of what's happening in the space and what needs to happen. Like that's going, that all has to get connected by the end of 2024. And there's going to be two more res auctions where you're going to see a lot more onshore wind and solar coming through as well, kind of beefing up. Because we, we fundamentally, we have, there's a kind of a hole in the dispatch profile at the moment. And this is where it's about being, you need the complementary technologies. Uh, you know, solar is very predictable, it comes on in the middle of the day, which is where we happen to have that, the hole in our current dispatch profile. So like your forecast error um, on solar tends to be less than 1%, which is essentially as close to predictable as you can get. You know how long it's going to generate and you know how much it's going to make uh, by and large when it comes on. That, that coming on in the middle of the day also helps with the decarbonization piece when you blend it in with the other technologies because A, it maximizes the number of hours in the day where you have green power coming and B, it's coming on in the middle of the day when there's some of the more inefficient assets come on. They, they tend, the ones who tend to be dirtier, who run during the, the higher price periods because that's, that's what they need to work. And by knocking some of those guys off, you actually help a little bit more with kind of uh, just what Noel described, the progression from the 10 million tons down to the 2 million. And really, you know, it'll be going to zero. You need to get to zero fairly quickly thereafter um, by knocking those guys off. Like we, the research we saw was saying something around 7% further carbon emissions. And I, I think that like that point that we're talking about where it's really about taking the carbon out of the system really means we can't, we can't like pursue one option um, to the exclusion of others. We have to pursue all of them in parallel. Um, and I think, we're, I think we're all loudly agreeing with each other on that. But yeah. like pointing to those benefits and thinking about it as an ecosystem, you know, you described 
Like there's there's no one option that gets you there. You're going to have a range of portfolios. You know, you almost have that that could solve the problem. And as there's smart investments further than Noel said, like that are that are there in the majority of scenarios. But the thing is, if if we're going to do that, we need to do that. We need to be getting those into planning process next year. We need to be moving forward actually this year, as early as we can, really, if we're going to get them there for 2030. So I suppose it's a further plea for urgency. And I think I was talking over Noel, so sorry. No, no, you're fine. I was just going to kind of back you up with what you were saying, but also just to, to note, I think that element that is often looked over again when you focus on 2030 is, is kind of the speed aspect of things. Mm. Every new solar panel, every new wind turbine that you bring onto the grid, every new battery, every new element of demand response helps remove carbon off the system right now. And when you get into a world where carbon budgets mm. are, are are going to be legally binding, you're in a world where we have, say, 295 million tonnes to play with between now and I think it's 2025, 2026. It, it, it's not going to be uh, a case where if you meet your goal in 2025, you've won. You know, it's, it's something that every year counts. So for onshore renewables in particular, the speed of deployment mm. for onshore wind and for solar between now and say at least 2027, 2028 needs to be enormous because it, it uh, try as we might um, and wish it as much as we could, it took us too long to move to offshore wind compared to where mm. we were. Uh, you know, we started, Ireland's story with offshore wind started in 2004. We had one of the largest offshore wind firms in the world at the time in Arklow Bay, and we haven't progressed it since then. The next offshore wind firm is uh, likely to connect towards the end of 2027, 2028, if all goes well. And we need a lot of that between 2028 and 2030. We need five gigawatts, but we need a huge amount of onshore renewables, true wind and true solar to help get us to that point and bridge that gap from where we are today to 2028, 2029 until the offshore renewables come on board. There's a big complementary nature between wind and solar as well in mm. that, you know, where, where there's concerns, there's barriers. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, let's say if we were looking at a, a 100% wind solution here, the concern always remains about what happens when you have a two week frost. What, what are yeah. you going to, how are you going to deal with this, with this long term storage issue? And like storage really is very much biased towards uh, install high power, low, mm. short duration, right? To deliver the system services that are needed to enable the use of low inertia uh, renewable energy. Um, and there's never really going to be that investment case for two weeks of storage. And even if there was an investment case, they, the resource depletion that we'd be mm. embarking on to actually f- facilitate that would be huge. Um, but I guess every day where you have a frosty day with no wind, yeah. you have clear skies and, and sunshine. Mm. So you you know now that you've turned a, a potential two-week problem into a within-day exactly. uh, storage challenge. And it's back to that point about we're designing for a zero-carbon system, not trying to get to 2030. Um, 2030 is just a you know way stop on the way. It, you're talking about an integrated system. And I think you said earlier on that most people in the sector, no one pretends that any solution is 100% effective by itself. No, no, no renewable advocate would say that. I mean, I'm still amazed the number of people that, t- that tell me that, you know, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And Very profound. I mean, I mean, 16 years in the industry, it's really good to finally find that out. Um, it, it's re- it, you know, we designed the system around burning dead dinosaurs essentially in a few places and pushing that out to people. That was the system. The system we're moving to, the one I described, is one that's much more complex, much more decentralized, and one that has this kind of uh, blend of what's happening on the demand side and the supply side. So, you know, the gener- we've talked about the generation side a lot um, because, you know, a lot of, we're talking about generators a lot. On the demand side, you kind of have two options, really. It's you make you make more of your own power, so that's 
predominantly solar, that seems to be the, uh, the dominant technology there, or you look at ways to vary your demand. So that probably falls very much into your court, Paddy. Um, it's, it's really kind of looking at the problem in that kind of holistic way. You know, we talk about it like every kilowatt hour you make yourself is one that doesn't have to be made somewhere else. And that system and that thinking, that kind of decentralization of mindsets, you know, you're talking about a much more democratic system. It's not, the system operators can't sit in the middle, you know, across Europe and say, when we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. Uh, you're moving to a system where you're thinking about trading and capturing weather fronts across a continent and thinking about moving power in those terms, while also at the same time facilitating individual people to participate. Because we, I have a big thing about solar being the gateway drug into sustainability. You know, so much of what we talk about is so big, you know, large scale interconnectors large uh, utility scale solar farms and you get someone putting the panels up on their roof and what you find is they're up in the middle of the night they're looking at the app on their phone they're starting to think about what oh, what else can I do because it's something you can do yourself it's very straightforward you see the immediate impact on your bill but it's that kind of pe- thing of enlisting people into the kind of the fight against climate change so much of it is governments kind of doing these large centralized schemes but not giving people options. You know, it's, the discussion is so often framed in terms of individual choice, but all the individual choices are conditioned by the infrastructure around you. It's all well and good saying, I want you to take, you know, I want you to take a bus, but if the bus service comes once a week, that's not really much help to anybody. So it's kind of been very joined up. It's really enabling people. And I think as well, from a political perspective, the, when you have a wider cohort of society demanding these changes in concert with the industry and some of the other people, I think that's going to become more powerful. I, I really do think the population is far ahead of the politicians on this one. And, and maybe just to build on that mm. point, uh, there's going to need to be a huge angle in terms of public trust and mm. in terms of, to be honest, politicians and system operators and everyone in, in industry stepping up. Um, getting used to being uncomfortable and making uncomfortable decisions because if we rely on the sort of, uh, say, investment landscape mm. that we've had nationally over the last 10, 15 years, we're just not going to get this done. We can't progress with large national infrastructure projects only for it to be held up by, say, local opposition without thinking about the bigger national picture. Mm. So trying to build up that trust by ensuring that people understand the problem that is in front of us, try and combat it in their own day-to-day lives in whatever way they can by putting solar panels on their roofs, by electrifying their vehicles or heat pumps. But then also for the state and for the system to provide them with um, uh, sufficient trust in things like their planning authorities so that when a planning authority makes a decision, the public understands that it's been through a very rigorous process, that it's been assessed, it's been scrutinised and they trust the outcome so that we can get on with it and, and build the infrastructure we're going to need to make some uncomfortable calls as an industry. And I'm talking about the government, I'm talking about system operators, the regulators, the industry themselves. We're going to need to build infrastructure and that's going to be a huge part of what we're going to need to do. Um, we've saw, we've learned a lot of lessons, I would hope, from the last decade about how not to do that uh, and about what did and did not work. So I think we need to take what did work and then multiply it by 10. Be brave, be comfortable getting uncomfortable um, and I think it was a thing, uh, something that um, uh, Tanya Harrington, she's the chairperson of Renewable Energy Ireland, she said it at our annual conference a few weeks ago, we need to encourage courage in mm. our leaders uh, and encourage politicians to step up 
and to have the conviction to be able to deliver on infrastructure in their areas and not have to worry about getting voted out afterwards. I think this this is a very important point to build on in terms of what the wind industry has come through. So with the wind industry faced a moratorium where it would be said there'd be never more than 400 megawatts of wind on the system and has had to overcome obstacles along the way. And you're saying there that we need to ensure that we aren't um, facing the same barriers as we, as we faced in the past. Um, so now when you look at uh, solar, the development of solar and offshore wind, what are the lessons from the past that we need to now uh, take forward and make sure that these aren't, uh, that, that the challenges aren't repeated again? Yeah, I, I think as a, say, as an industry, the onshore wind sector has certainly learned a huge amount in the last six, seven years when it comes to, it comes to community engagement. Communities are engaged at a much earlier part in the process than they ever have been before. And I think it's important to say, you know, we don't always get it right, but we're learning and, and we need to keep learning. It would be very, very rare right now for any onshore wind firm to begin its planning process and engagement process and end up with the exact same project coming out the other end. There's very often turbines moved, there's turbines removed, um, and there's a lot of learning that takes place through engagement with local communities. We're already seeing that now with the offshore wind sector as well. There's been a lot of public engagement off the East Coast in particular because those projects are going to be the earliest that move into the planning system uh, from next year onwards. So a lot of the, say, phase one offshore projects, as they're called, five off the East Coast, one off the West Coast, they've been running their public information sessions. They've been trying to engage with the public on what the offshore wind firm might look like, where's the best place to locate turbines, what are the, the big risks, the visual impacts that people might have so that they can try to minimise or mitigate any of those well in advance of the planning process and try and bring people along with them. Yeah. I think community um, uh, in investment and community funding is also a very big element of this. So in the renewable electricity support scheme, there are community energy projects that are being brought through. There, There's communities right across Ireland learning how to develop solar farms mm -hmm. and wind farms and, and to be brought through that process. The community investment fund that's going to, or community funds, or benefit fund, I should say, that's going to be there through res between now and 2030 is enormous. There's, uh, and, and that will hopefully pave the way for a lot of um, uh, additional benefits to be seen in communities, not just through electricity, but through mm, yeah. things like, um, you know, social learning of renewables and, and retrofitting and, and that type of thing. Like those community benefit funds as well have to kind of align with sustainable development mm, goals in yeah. a lot of cases. So there's, it's not just, uh, it's, I suppose, trying to you use that money in the community to kind of leverage it for kind of sustained climate action in the local area. I think like when we look at solar in terms of planning, to date, um, it's probably been a more benign environment. Um, I think about 93% of solar projects were successful through the planning process. Um, I suspect as the industry scales up, there's probably likely to see a little bit more opposition as it becomes more visible. The reality of what's involved in the process is, in Ireland is very significant. There is, and I think that point that Noel makes about kind of trying to encourage confidence in the process is very important. I, the couple of dimensions we'd see in that would be, one would be resourcing it properly. Like planners are overstretched. They have a wall of infrastructure coming to them. Um, it's impossible for a planner to be an expert in all the spaces. So they essentially ask a lot of questions. They, you know, the process takes, can take a long time. Then there's a kind of judicial element often at the end of it, if you, if you get appealed through on board Planola. Something we've tried to do um, is uh, establish a, kind of a set of guidelines for developers um, with a view that this is what good looks like. And then we would also provide it to the planners. So this is kind of like, 
this is also what good looks like. So from your side, if you're assessing a project, what what questions should you ask and what you know what piece of information should you make sure there? We've just received SEI funding to update that piece of work. So we're going to be going through a process engaging with the local authorities, um, engaging with Onboard Planol and others to try and kind of uh, work through that and understand, you know, kind of update that so that it's useful to the current the current crop of planners. Um, but I, I suppose like ultimately it's trying to make sure that we can get the volume of projects through the process to help meet the decarbonisation goals, but also kind of respecting that the planning process is how we use, how we make land use decisions, yeah. you know. But in terms of uh, uh, community engagement mm. and community perception, uh, solar certainly has the benefit of it's more acceptable to bring solar close to the load centres mm. uh, where it's used. In fact, people have it on the rooftops. That's mm. about as close as you can possibly get. And I suppose that's a key opportunity where uh, it's not just about building renewables and have, having it generated, it needs to be consumed. Yeah. And the electricity system, it's the questions that are being asked of it in terms of its ability to transport this mm. power um, and particularly in terms of changes in usage patterns with electrification mm. of transport and heat. It's asking questions of the system that it was never designed to, to yeah. meet. And so, uh, you know, we can't, e- ESB, or discussions with ESB highlight that we can't infrastructure our way out of this. No. Historically, the answer to pretty much every question was more copper. Um, but that answer doesn't get us towards uh, the objectives that we're trying to meet. It just simply can't mm. build, couldn't build it out fast enough. So I guess solar, we talk about the blended approach mm. and like, you know, there is a very good uh, high efficiencies in developing large scale grid scale solar, but there's, it creates a transport problem. But solar, there is an opportunity and that is key value in, in your industrial and solar, uh, sorry, industrial and commercial customers and your residential mm. customers integrating solar in the load centers. Yeah, I think like just what I might just touch on one point you made uh, uh, in the intro there um, that like one of the uh, unusual uh, advantages we have with our, where our solar resources in Ireland is that it's largely located near the demand centres. So there's an opportunity to basically integrate the generation close to the demand, which would be helpful because that should in theory mean that you don't have to build as much network when you're integrating the utility scale piece. Down when you start then looking down to kind of the commercial and industrial rooftops, which are really starting to scale up, um, you're starting to see megawatt scale rooftops now uh, being built all around the country. And that's for people outside the industry, it's hard to explain how big a difference that is. That's something like 400 times what's on your rooftop at home if you install a standard system. It is huge and it's a significant portion of their demand. Same at the residential level. So if people start generating the, the more themselves, then you come back to that point of one kilowatt hour at home is one that doesn't have to be made somewhere else and transported. Because ultimately, if you think about your power bill and the kilowatt hour that gets to you, that started out somewhere else, got moved across the country, got translated and changed form several times before it gets to you. So you've lost a lot of that original kilowatt hour, whereas everything you make yourself, uh, you know, you use yourself. Uh, in the majority of cases, you might have some for export. But that also means that if you do that in a disaggregated way around a country, you take down the overall demand curve. So that then means that you don't need to make as much up at the utility scale. Um, so that seems like a really good win for everybody. And then when we look at, uh, we look at offshore wind. Mm. Um, so, you know, when are we going to see on offshore wind materialize? And aside from the fact that it's, you know, it's reducing the number of wind turbines that are going to be on the landscape here. What what are the key benefits in terms of the operation of the system that offshore wind uh, brings? I'd say it it the the first 
say, or I should, I should say the second offshore wind farm in Ireland. The first <laughs> is nearly 20 years old. The second will be uh, hopefully exporting power from the end of 2027, early 2028. We're going to have the first offshore renewable electricity auction open towards the end of this year. So uh, we should see hopefully six projects enter into that. Uh, and then they'll be bidding about this time next year, maybe a bit earlier in the year. And that'll give us a, a clear sign as to what projects will first begin connecting onto the grid. But that's only going to be the start of the story for offshore wind energy in Ireland. Um, if you look at what the overall uh, capability that we can deliver through electrons and through uh, hydrogen, um, through offshore wind energy to help decarbonize Europe, it, it truly is enormous. The target that we have between now and 2030 of 5 gigawatts is very ambitious from where we're starting from. We need to get a planning system up and running. We've only had legislation for a planning system for offshore wind energy for five months now. Incredibly, uh, we should see the first planning application for an offshore wind farm go into Ambor Planola in Q1 next year. So that's going to be a whole learning process that the entire planning system is going to have to go through. Just to touch on a point that Connell made, um, uh, the, the secret to decarboning decarbonizing Ireland and meeting our overall climate change goals is planners. We need more planners. Um, we're, we have gigawatts of solar and onshore wind projects going into Ambore Planola right now. We're going to have uh, tens of gigawatts potentially of offshore wind energy going into Ambore Planola and they need to make decisions on that quite quickly and they need to be uh, robust in their decisions. They need to understand them. So we need to see that, that resourced up. Then the next part of that puzzle is going to be the grid. So um, uh, again, uh, I think AirGrid were designated as the transmission asset owner of the offshore grid. So they'll design and they'll own the assets. That happened about a year ago now. There's been a huge learning curve for uh, AirGrid and everyone in the industry to try and get up to speed and understand how offshore grid connections are going to work, how the offshore grid is going to develop over time. As I said, we only have a, a target for five gigawatts between now and 2030. Most of that is going to be grid connected. Anything beyond that will have to either directly connect into electrolyzers for hydrogen or it might be post-2030 when we're starting to connect the dots offshore and really scale up, begin our offshore grid infrastructure and begin the beginning of what would ultimately be a European supergrid, which Ireland is going to be a key contributor to. In terms of the barriers that need to be alleviated, so you, you, planning comes up again and again and again. So is planning just absolute top step in terms of the challenges that need to be addressed? Or, or what are the other key challenges that need to be addressed going forward? And how would you, how would you prioritize that? Uh, I'd say it's planning for me. I don't think it is for no, Connell. No, for I, me, it's network one planning two. Yeah, I think it's vice versa it's, for you. It's, it's, probably, it's probably vice versa, but it's only vice versa in the short term, mm. I would hope, because right now bot planning is the bottleneck. It's just, uh, it's taken too long from projects when they go in to apply for their planning to when they come out. Uh, just to give you an idea, there's about 1300, uh, 1300 megawatts, so 1.3 gigawatts of wind energy in the planning authorities now. More than half of that has been there since 2020. So, you know, you're talking nearly 18 months that it's been in there waiting for a decision. We need to get those projects out of planning so that they can enter into an mm. auction so that we can deliver more efficient auctions. But I, I think there's, and like we talk about planning and grid as these kind of isolated issues or, or like, you know, we talk about them as specific thematic concerns, but actually a big problem is the the integration of the whole piece. You know, Noel mentioned sequential delivery earlier. You know, if you think about it, you go and you talk to a landowner, um, when you secure option to that, the project goes into a planning process. You go through, uh, say, you go through the local planning authority, then potentially you might be have an appeal process on board, then there's a judicial review. At that point, you then go into a grid process. You might get a might take a few years to get a great connection offer. You then go into an auction. You secure your capacity. Then you go out and you try and get finance into the project. 
Then you try and get all the equipment. Then you try and build it. Like that's a lot of moving parts. And because it all has to be done sequentially, it's very hard. It's very time intensive. It takes a very long time to deliver projects here relative to other markets. And that's, that is a concern. Um, and it's the, what's, what's kind of often frustrating with the policy framework is you've, while the policy framework recognizes the sequential nature, it doesn't recognize the interdependencies. So for example, if you have a res contract, so you, the res contract will have a date by which you have to deliver the project by, but it, does, it doesn't allow for grid delays as a reason for you not to be there. So if the infrastructure is late, it's your problem, not the infrastructure company. Now, the infrastructure company is the, you know, the body responsible for it, but they're an element of the state that kind of their responsibility gets removed from it. And I think we, if we're really, really serious about this, we really have to compress timeframes. It is about resourcing these processes, but it's also about having that kind of integrated view, bringing them together. We've really been talking about synthesis a lot and synthesizing all these different work streams. You know, it's been a theme throughout the conversation. And this is absolutely fundamental. It can't, you can't have a situation where, uh, you know, the solar farm that energized there, the first, the landowners were signed up in 2016 and it energized in April, 2022. That's just not good enough. That's not going to work. Um, no, what Noel's describing there with like the offshore delivery timeframes, like that is extremely challenging. I used to work in the offshore wind industry and you look at, you look at the delivery timeframes there um, and you're talking a mature industry planning, you know, mature, they've got all these processes in place. They'd be doing well to deliver the kinds of timeframes Noel is talking about. Now that's not a knock on offshore. That's actually a knock on the Irish state and the need to kind of really accelerate these processes and work, work hard, you know, bring us together as well a bit more. There's a lot of kind of siloed thinking. There's a lot of people in dark rooms doing things and then spitting out outputs we we really have to get coordinated here do we know where we feature in terms of um in com- comparison to international timelines for delivery of renewable projects we're we're typically quite slow yeah quite honest, slow yeah, yeah. and you talked to Noel about 7000 jobs in the wind mm. industry in Ireland so are there just not enough jobs in the industries that are required to enable the deployment of renewable energy so between your uh, your system operators your planning agencies your regulators your government bodies are they just not resourced? It, well it, it is a big, it is a big challenge right across the sector. I think right now, I, I think uh, everywhere you look in Europe, it's not just in Ireland mm. that we're all turning to the electricity system to try and decarbonize to reduce our energy bills to get more energy secure. There's a, a huge um, shortage of people, generally mm. speaking. I think there's yeah. a lot of jobs available in the industry right, right now. I know there's probably close to a hundred jobs that are going in Airgrid right now. On board Planola have uh, jobs up there. Mm. We need planners, we need engineers. So if there's any young people listening to this, yeah. you're in secondary school, you're thinking about what to do in your future, you're going to have a very long, successful career if you try to get into the renewable sector because that's what we need. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, you, And if you look at what the European Commission are doing at the minute, they've just published an EU solar strategy. Just And you know, a big part of it is we need to like build domestic manufacturing capability. We need to facilitate a real boom in the skills piece as much as anything else really you know, really getting people into the sector. And I think sometimes people get turned off coming into the sector. They say, well, I'm not an engineer. I'm not going, we need every skill set we can lay our hands on. So, it, you know, if you have the will and the interest, I think you'll find is a very satisfying career. I think this is similar with the heat sector. It's, yeah. mm-hmm. it's across the board, getting the skills in, uh, getting the skills on board. So there's a lot of opportunity in mm-hmm. the, uh, the industry has a lot of opportunity and it's going to create more. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, me- they're me- sorry to, but it is, there are meaningful jobs as well. Right. You talked about it being very purpose driven. Like there is, 
there's a huge, it's a very satisfying space in which to work. It's not easy, but it is yeah. very yeah. satisfying uh, on a personal level. One thing that we've started to do in, in Wind Energy Ireland, we do a partnership with a, a SkillNet Ireland or a government funded training body. Um, and we jointly operate a company called Green Tech SkillNet, where we uh, run a lot of training courses for the entire sector on loads of different types of um, uh, processes and different topics over the course of the year. But we started something last year called Work in Wind, where every uh, twice a year we're taking on 30 people that want to completely reskill and get into the sector. It's been incredible. We've had um, musicians come, we've had artists come, we've had electricians, builders uh, go through this process. They they get trained up for six weeks, they get jobs in the sector through placements. 80% plus of them have gone on to find permanent jobs in the industry. We're about to take on our third group now. Um, but the, the key message is there that there's so many jobs out there and so many opportunities and it's never too late to get into it. Never. Yeah. And can I, we've asked, we've looked at each of the technologies independently. So can I just ask for your view, if we go towards 2030 as a, as a stepping stone towards net zero, what's your views on what the energy mix looks like, particularly around obviously onshore, offshore uh, in terms of wind and uh, solar um, on the system as well? I suppose starting with the, from our perspective, just purely the solar piece, we'd probably say we can see it uh, providing 20% of kind of power by the end uh by 2030. Now that's a blend of about gigawatts, probably about five gigawatts um, uh, on kind of utility scale solar, probably something of the order of one gigawatt of kind of customer scale. Now, I that th- those scenarios were kind of pulled pulled together last year. I think the though the kind of about, we expect about 500 megawatts from Res One to be built kind of by next year. We've got another 1.5 that just came through Res Two. So that like five gigawatts utility scale looks very achievable. I think the one gigawatt number on the customer scale stuff is actually quite light um, because you don't actually need to put panels on a lot of roofs. Um, We're currently doing a piece of research into that at the minute and I hope to be able to talk more about that the next time. Very good. And I suppose, look, if you look at the the residential rooftop Mm. and what's been done there to date, that's been without the ability to sell back at any exactly you know, we've and but even still like I, I think according to ESP there's about twenty three thousand rooftops that are in a, that are already there they're in a position to generate and that's like you know we have about one point eight million occupied homes in this country so one point seven so like this and you know you you don't need a yeah. lot you know you add say say it's a three kilowatt system to two hundred fifty thousand of those you get you start getting into big numbers very quickly and you'll get there if you put the stimulus of a of an incentive yeah, and, behind and it. we're actually seeing it like uh, like with the kind of forthcoming the microgeneration support scheme due out in uh july um with the kind of payments starting to flow then like we're i have i have one member who's telling me they're doing 50 jobs a week in terms of microgeneration which is mm, you incredible. know it, it's an incredible number like and then in terms of wind, is that the other 60% of the 80% target or how do you? Well, so the the interesting thing is that people think that we're at 40% and that's just going to stay static. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that demand is increasing all of the time. So 40% today is not going to be 40% in, in a couple of years time. Uh, so uh, from our perspective, we want the system to be able to enable what's in the climate action plan. And the climate action plan has a goal of 8 gigawatts of onshore wind and 5 gigawatts of offshore wind. Uh, today, we're at about 4.3 gigawatts installed for onshore wind. There's probably about 1.2, 1.3 gigawatts contracted either through Res 1, Res 2 and corporate PPAs now. So we're, we're in that kind of five and a half, getting up to six already. So we've another maybe two, two and a half gigawatts there that we need the system to enable. And what I mean by that is we need enough projects coming through planning 
uh, coming through the grid connection process to be able to compete in auctions. Not everybody's going to be successful. Mm. And I think it's really important that there's a recognition there that we need competition to drive down the price. So while your goals are to try and, you know, hit certain gigawatt targets, mm. you actually need nearly multiples of that coming that, through the system. And I suppose that kind of is the point, you know, you have a grid process, you have a planning process, you have this auction process and you're going to lose projects all the way through. So that really does you know, your your output is delivered green kilowatt hours, but your input is a high volume of renewable projects because you will lose some through the way. And the competition process, the auction is there to try and ensure that you have the most economic blend of projects coming through. And that's 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 life in a in the big bad world of it's like a sales funnel. You yeah. need to have a fat wide exactly. sales funnel. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, yeah. to, to give you some just a ballpark numbers, there's um so in that first phase one of projects, they're going to be competing in an auction, say for two to three gigawatts. There's about four gigawatts in that. In the second batch, then say phase two, there's probably about twenty five gigawatts of projects that are all in various stages of development that are going to be competing for an auction for maybe three gigawatts. So you're you, there's going to be a serious funneling mm. down of projects there. That's first going to happen through mm. the planning process, then through the grid connection process, and then ultimately through the route to market. And there will be projects that are unsuccessful, but they have an, uh, an, uh, an opportunity then to try and re-optimize, to become more mm. economic, to change maybe their route to market, to maybe look towards hydrogen, to, to look elsewhere through maybe a corporate PPA to see can they get a route to market and ultimately deliver onto the system, maybe not the electricity. Uh, say through d- direct electrification or, or using the grid, but maybe true hydrogen, which is something that's really going to pick up on towards the end of the decade. And we've just seen the Res2 auction results come out. Can you give me um, some insights into the sentiment around the Res2 auction and then corporate PPAs uh, for for on for sure wind in particular. Yeah, so I think there's there's probably a, a, a real competition there at the moment yeah. between the Res support scheme and corporate PPAs, and uh, there's a lot of active buyers out there from large energy users, from pharmaceutical companies that are looking at um, onshore wind as a cheap form of renewable energy. They're trying to lock them into long term contracts, and I'd say what has happened with Res two is probably there was eligible onshore wind projects that had their planning, they had their grid connections, that they went down the corporate. PPA route rather than going into res. So we had just over 400 megawatts of onshore wind compete in the res 2 auction. One of the main reasons for there's a couple of reasons, but one of the main maybe two reasons for that is one, there's very often a portfolio play when you're looking at a corporate PPA. You don't just go project by project. You actually go for a quantity of energy that needs to be delivered at a certain point in time. And from a developer's point of view, that can often be quite attractive because you're looking at a suite of projects that you're hoping to deliver and you can deliver them all through one corporate PPA rather than having to wait for sequential auction processes every single year. So it becomes a very attractive um, way to get your portfolio off the ground. The second reason comes down to indexation. So uh, a lot of corporate PPAs now, the contracts that are on offer are indexed. We've been through such a volatile inflationary period in the last few uh, months it's very, very challenging to try and estimate how that's going to play out over time. Will there be deflation? Will there be even continued inflation? When you look at the res auction, you're trying to guess what your inflation levels are going to be like for 15 years. And for a lot of investors, specifically institutional pension investors, pension funds, it's a very uncomfortable place for them to be in. So they tend not to want to put their money into uh, things that are unindexed. And for that reason, I think you see a lot of that type of money, that type of investment fund flow into the corporate PPA market. Well, I think like where we see kind of the corporates internationally and domestically interested in the solar side, I think it's lar- it's from the profile piece because mm. you know, it's the certainty of the output. And then it's 
you know, I know what this asset's going to do for the next 30 years and it allows them to kind of kind of de-risk it to some extent. And again, similar, you'd see similar behavior of looking at portfolios um, of projects, again, trying to kind of de-risk across a blend. Um, I think like the smart play, we're probably going to see more and more as we move forward into kind of more of these kind of hybrid sites where you have multiple technologies on one site and the kind of firming access. That's going to be very interesting because that's going to play into both the res and the CPPA. But I suppose we've kind of below, we've kind of buried the lead. I suppose the big story about Res 2 really was that 78% of the capacity awarded was solar. Uh, so like it's a technology neutral auction and we've seen solar deliver 15, over 1500 megawatts, which is just astonishing. It's a real reward to an industry that has been trying to roll a rock up a hill for a very, very long time. And I think I think developers get a bad rap, uh, but I'm in awe of some of these people, their, their ability to kind of persevere in the face of such barriers, institutional inertia, lack of delivery of policy. I, I think it's really quite something. And it's re- we, it kind of, it's the, it is the day that solar came of age in Ireland. And it's going to, it means that like, I think as we play forward, the competitive dynamics between solar and wind are going to be really interesting. It's going to make it's going to make for uh, some lively auctions and some. I suspect some lively meetings between Noel and myself in the future. Yeah, <laughs> just to say, I completely agree with that. I mean, the the key message that's coming out of Res Two is that this is nearly two gigawatts of mm. renewable capacity mm. that's going to be delivering for our Irish consumers in in two years' time. So it's mm. a, it really is a great outcome in terms of energy build. We would love to work on the price. I think mm. definitely there's a lot that we can do there to bring down the price. We're probably one of the few sectors across all industries that say, you know, we're too expensive. We yeah. want to be cheaper. We want well, to be well, cheaper. Because ena- if, you, if you take down the cost, it enables many more commercial models. It allows more of these projects to get built and delivered. Um, Noel mentioned indexation. That's a big concern in the, the res process. So when people... So, you know, that's a risk and risk has to be quantified and ultimately a number put on that. Networks is a big part of that. There's a huge, and, and it hits in two sides. One is the actual cost of building the network is very expensive. It's also very uncertain. So you have to build in some risk profile around that. There's also a big risk around the kind of, I suppose we've talked a bit about the enabling infrastructure piece, you know, actually making sure the ne- the network can accommodate what comes off these projects. And we're and we're really not building a network to do that at the minute. The network we have wastes so much renewable output at the minute. And the the kind of forward estimates only suggest that problem's getting worse. So if they're not prepared to build that network, then that also means that people have to price that in. So yeah, I mean, we we want we want to go to the point where subsidy is not required. And particularly from a just kind of parochial solar perspective, we look over in GB this about 15,000 megawatts of solar built there um, across rooftop, across utility scale, all different, all different shapes and sizes. And there's a significant cohort of that that has now been built without subsidy. That's because they got, um, they got serious about the cost over there and they, you know, the networks companies took a facilitative approach. The UK auction uh, coming later this year, um, the, the cap in that is lower than our output bid price from a competitive process. And that tells you how far out of kilter we are. I think it, it comes to about 68 euro per megawatt hour is the cap in the auction for solar. And, you know, with an average outturn price in res to 97 euro, we, we want, we want to be doing, we really want to be doing so much better than that. As Noel said, like this value to, it, it's still, 
compared to the current wholesale price, it's good value. But we really, that's not good enough. Yeah. We want it to be so much cheaper than that. And and just to, like, I think it goes back to a point you made earlier, Connell, is, is that, you know, efficient contracts mm. place the risk with those that are best placed to manage it. Mm. And right now, we just don't have that in Ireland. We have a huge risk sitting with the developer that feeds into the bid price. Many risks mm. that they're not best placed to manage. So it really is a do what you can, but you're always going, you're, you're going to have to build your contingency into that. And uh, from what I understand, that's probably not just in the res auction. That's right across a lot of our auctions, across mm. system services and capacity auctions. This, lead, this leads on nicely to the other technologies and services that you're dependent on mm. in order to be able to actually have the renewable energy utilised. I often feel like uh, if renewable energy uh, is is iron you need vitamin C. Mm. Um, um, so you're dependent. So your ability to actually achieve your outputs mm. that you're that you're anticipating, um, that the that the but system like, operators expect, you need other technology types. Yeah. Now this isn't a fishing expedition in terms of this question, but what are the other technology we types? We love demand response. response. <laughs> There's a coordinated response for you, Paddy. Um, so no, I, like I, I think this is, goes back to the point that if you focus on carbon, this is where it mm. comes important. It's not just renewables. It's you need demand response. You need synchronous condensers. My, I, I joke about this all the time. If I can get everyone in Ireland to understand what a synchronous condenser is in 10 years time, then we've done our jobs. You yeah. know, we've done very well. It is, it, it, but it's thinking about, like I think you said earlier on about like storage. We think about it in a very short term way in this country what we've installed you know you, th- you think back to Turlock Hill like a, you know you pump a lot of water in a mountain and you have it ready to go like that it's that scale of thinking that's required and it's back to that integrated point if you model a zero carbon system and you constrain it for okay how do we maximize the hours in the day when it's not you know when we when renewable output may not be sufficient to meet the the demand that we have at that moment in time it's either, you know, looking at things like demand response, uh, but it's also finding sources of flexibility and then designing the appropriate incentives and markets for that so that people can come in and deliver that. It's not there at the minute. And it, it, it is like we're going to run into that, that barrier soon enough. Like one of the things, Ireland's kind of funny, in a, you know, we're a laggard in some ways, but in terms of like accommodating renewables on an isolated system, we actually are quite ahead of the curve. Like when I go to Europe and I talk to people about uh, what's coming on our system, we're like we're about 10 years ahead of where yeah. a lot of them are. And their they're thinking is mired in a kind of an older world. And we, we really have to move fast because someone, someone also has to kind of lead the way, has to show what you need to do. And if you integrate your planning around this kind of zero carbon trajectory and you start kind of thinking about, okay, well, I need in- seasonal duration storage. I don't just need, you know, one... I don't, don't just need batteries that are going to turn on for 30 minutes when the wind drops off slightly. Uh, you know, we're going to have a demand response. We're going to be able, we're going to have customers generating their own power. We're going to have these large scale utility projects and this system is going to balance in milliseconds. Hmm. You design it, you, you, that's, if you're thinking like that, then I, I think those solutions will naturally find their home. Uh, yeah, and the, the like the DS3 program did a lot of that with the system services. I know like me and you, Paddy, we sat on the DS3 Advisory Council for years trying to solve this. Um, uh, the system services market that we created in Ireland created incentives for better response mm-hmm. from renewables, from better response for demand response. It created a market for battery energy storage. By the end of next year, we're going to have about 700 megawatts of short duration battery energy storage on the system when we had 10 megawatts three years ago do you know that's a really 
effective market that we're after growing. We've met the system needs there. Now we need to determine, right, what's next? How do we get to that zero carbon endpoint? How do we get to 100% renewables? What do we need in order to do that? And how do you create the efficient electricity markets, uh, true system services, true capacity, true res auctions, true the day-to-day uh, energy market? How, how do all of those work together? We really need a fundamental system redesigned to get us to that point. And historically, when we looked at offsetting with PPAs, it was basically a large quantum of energy over a long period of time that was offset. Mm-hmm. But now we're looking towards moving where you need the profiles to align. Mm-hmm. It has to be in real yeah. time. So is that going to be, uh, is that going to stimulate a lot of development of storage on this, on the actual renewable energy generation sites in order to be able to smooth their delivery, um, yeah. which would support both um, uh, more efficient delivery on their corporate PPAs, less exposure to negative pricing if they're, uh, if they're res procured. And also then the delivery of more uh, I s- system services. I, I think it, like one of the, the challenges for, you know, flexibility generally is that often the product you're providing isn't necessarily one that you can monetize in a way that's bankable, that someone can come mm-hmm. in and invest in it. So, you know, you look for like, say if I, I have a, free, say it's frequency response for the, because we've talked about that a lot. So, you know, I get paid to come on for five minutes and go away again and I'll be called again when the system operator needs me. An investor looks at that and goes, well, I can't quantify what your revenues are for the next 10 years, so no, I'm not putting money into you. Um, that's why you've seen like, this kind of dependence on things like capacity markets and so forth. We haven't really integrated all of that together. We have these kind of all these traded places that you can sell, sell power into or sell kind of power adjacent products uh, into, but they don't really line up with each other because we designed it very much from this perspective of Oh, generator produces power, a supplier buys power and then sells to customers. And that's the kind of, the, the world we're moving into is one where the boundaries between these things are much more porous. Mm. And you start getting a, a, this kind of need for a much more integrated design because you want, you need to be designing that market today to create the spur. So people focus on, oh, this, 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 sorry, I'm not saying you do, you did this, Patty, but like, you know, this mechanism will help or that mechanism will help. You design the market in a way that aligns with the, the problem. And the problem is carbon. You design the market so it rewards things that, that, that provide the solution to that carbon and you'll get the, those products being investable and that will, that will spur the activity. Because like, the DS3, there's been some, there was some really great features about it, but it's also created this little bit of a gold rush. There's, a, there's, a, there's an auction, then it stops. Yeah. You know, that's not what we need, you know, to develop the kind of scale of flexibility products and scale. Totally. And like, I I think you can take that lesson. Um, It's something that even just from where we started this discussion, how do we get to 40% renewable electricity? We did it because we had a plan across a lot Mm. of things from early in that decade. Mm. But then we probably took our eye off the ball in terms of... uh, progressing renewables as a sector from about 2015, 16 onwards, real stagnation in, uh, you know, uh, what comes after the DS3 program system services, real stagnation in terms of refit. It took us a long time to get res off the ground, real stagnation in terms of what's our grid development plan uh, when grid 25 isn't going to work. Uh, and that led to where we're, we are today. I mean, in 2021, we didn't have any new renewables connected onto the grid. That's incredible. Like the start of the decade, start mm-hmm. for a carbon budget, we had no new renewables connected onto the system. 2020 we're going to get some renewables, but not a, not as much as we should have done. So that's a real lesson that we need to learn. Let's not take our eye off the ball and say yeah. 2030 is the end goal here. Let's get auctions run mm. till you 2025. Need, we, need, we need to be beyond that. We need yeah, to think in that it, zero and carbon that, mindset. And I think that point about it's the steady through flow. Ireland's very episodic. It's like these spurts and fits of activity and then it dies away. Like, you know, what we need is just that. 
steady through flow projects coming through the processes we're talking about and steady through flow projects being connected? Well, I guess, you know, if you look at Green Party, 2007, kind of mm. 2008 time frame, mm. stimulates a lot of movement. Now again, stimulating mm. a lot of movement. But we can't have this happen on a 15-year-odd cycle. Uh, so is it a case that we need European policies to be more prescriptive so it transcends governments, the changes in government, um, so that it does keep that steady yeah. stream European policy is only going one direction. Mm. I think we just had the Repower EU document mm. come out two weeks ago, or last week actually, sorry. And um, uh, it's it couldn't be stronger in terms of we need more renewables and we need yeah. them as soon as we possibly can. We need to get ourselves off fossil fuels. We need to transition to, to hydrogen. We need a more active, flexible demand system. It's saying everything that we need to do. I think we often find the problem actually comes mm. down to here's your EU directive. It's brilliant. How do you implement it it's in Ireland? Implementation, it's implementation. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it goes back to, do we have enough people that are in the critical parts of government and state bodies and, and planning authorities to take the really good direction that we're getting from Europe and turn it into an implementable policy mm. in a quick enough time frame? We yeah. often get there, but we get there maybe two, it's three also years an, implement, an implementation that maximises effect. I think yeah. that's also yeah. very important. Well, like you, you have two big, say for example, you have two big, uh, parts of the repower package. One was like the mandating like all buildings to have, all new buildings to have solar on them and you know the uh, that through the planning planning and grid processes would treat uh, particularly planning would treat renewable projects as projects of overriding national interest. Mm. Now that is the second one is quite a significant you know thump down but and that that's all well good but then it percolates down to a planning system that goes that's great but I have you know, I have five people in the office and we're, we're already overburdened. I, we'd love to treat it as that, but we don't have the capability to do it. So it is about that translation, that implementation, that kind of, we, a lot of the risk gets put onto the industry as things are structured today. And a lot of the kind of onus on delivering, like, you know, we, 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 we talked a great, but we talked uh, uh, earlier about the great work that was done in a programmatic way um, from uh, across the, you know, from a variety of players in terms of enabling our wind deployment. But a lot of that came from wind developers pushing against the state in a lot of ways to eventually be given the space to allow them to compete in the market, which then created the opportunities for like a lot of the other projects start funneling through. And we, we just, we don't have the time to kind of allow that to do it that way again. We have to do these things in a coordinated way and we have to make the hard decisions. We have to be prepared. to. T- we can't just go, oh, there's a trade-off hmm, and kind of equivocate. We actually have to make a decision. And if there are losers in a particular decision, then you have to figure out the ways to minimize the impacts on them. Or if there's something pro-social you can do to help, then you do that. But you can't, the half measures, that's yeah. gone. That day is done. I think, you know, a real summary for this for me We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of ground on this. We need to act fast, act big, act effectively, but act towards long-term objectives. Mm. I think that's a real take-home for me out of this. Totally, but honestly, not too (laughs) long-term. I mean, it it might sound crazy, but I I know I spent a lot of time saying that we need a net zero electricity system. We need that by 2035. Let's Mm. call a spade a spade. We have about 12 years to do it here. 12 years is the equivalent time to when that target was set in 2008 of 40% and when we delivered in 2020. And that won't be the end goal either. We're going to continue beyond that. You you know, you look at that system of the future, you're talking, uh, our problem is we're going to have too much clean renewable electricity. Uh, So we're going to have all this wonderful 
economic input into our future economy, that's not a problem. And we need to stop think, acting like it is a problem. The, the problem is going to be, what are we going to do with it? Like, well, what exciting new things is it going to create? Uh, you know, what, what will Ireland become the leader in because we have this wonderful input into our economy? And, and that's where we need to stand up, put up mm. our hand and tell Europe that we are going to help you. We are mm. going to be a battery to help mm. power you, to decarbonize you. And that's the end goal for Ireland. That's mm. what we should be striving yeah, for. Energy great. independence for the country and for the continent. That's a great message. Noel, Connell, it's been brilliant chatting to you. I could really stay here talking all day, but unfortunately we have to wrap it up at some point. So <laughs> thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. Thank you.